Galatians chapter 4, if you have a copy of the scriptures, as Joe was praying just a moment ago, we're jumping back into this book. Um, we, I'll get to that in, in just a second as to where we've been with this. But if you'll do me a favor and stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to read the first seven verses in this chapter, and this will serve as the, the platform and what we'll be talking about today. Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. He says, Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, instead he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. And when the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God sent, his, sent the spirit of his son, that's Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave. I love this phrase here. You're no longer a slave, but you are a son. You're a daughter. You're a child. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that before we even begin to study your word, we can celebrate your faithfulness and your activity. God, that you simply allow us to be a part of. God, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about making Jesus known and helping people find and follow him. That's why we exist. God, I pray that your hand of favor would continually remain on living hope, Lord. And now as we, as we walk through this passage of scripture together, would your spirit teach us very clearly? Would you give us open ears that we need to hear from you, God? Hearts to receive this word, Lord, so that we don't just hear it, but we do something with it as we live this out the rest of our week. And we'd be doers of the word, not hearers only. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the last time that we were in the book of Galatians was actually the, the end of May, 14 weeks ago, was the last time we explored this book. And uh, part of the reason that I want to take these next few moments and kind of look back on where we've been in this book is because there's families that weren't with us back in May, people in person, people online um, that are part of Living Hope Columbus now that um, you weren't with us the first three chapters. We spent 11 weeks walking through the first three chapters of Galatians. And so I want to kind of catch us up as to what's occurred in these first three chapters to where we arrive at this point in chapter four, where Paul begins to tell the church in Galatia what it really means to be an heir of Christ, to be a child of the one true king that is Jesus. And so to understand the book of Galatians, and you're welcome to turn back here if you'd like to, you have to start all the way back in Acts chapter 13. You can write this down in your notebook, turn there if you want to. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, if you remember, Paul is the author of this letter that was written to the church in Galatia. And Paul in Acts chapter 13 was a part of a church known as the church at Antioch. Specifically, Paul was one of the teachers there at that church. You jump down to Acts chapter 13, verse 3, you see that that church in Antioch, as they were fasting and praying before the Lord, that the Spirit of God told them to send Paul, the author of our letter to the Galatians, and then also a man named Barnabas out on a long-term mission trip. He was sending them out not to just share the gospel among the Jewish people, which Paul would do, but Paul was specifically to go with Barnabas to share the gospel among the Gentiles. If you're unfamiliar with those two terms, the Jews were those who find their lineage from Abraham. Maybe you've heard his name before. Everybody else is a Gentile. So chances are, I don't know everybody in this room this morning, 
but you're probably not a Jew. You're a Gentile if you're seated in this room this morning. And so God is beginning to expand his family now in the book of Acts beyond just the Jewish people, but he's expanding it to the Gentiles as well. And we read there in Acts chapter 14, if you jump to the next chapter, that Paul and Barnabas traveled through several different areas, uh, several different regions, but one specifically that was made up of three towns was this region known uh, as Galatia, Acts chapter 14. You can read some of the hardship that they encountered in Galatia. At one point, the crowds of people thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes from Greek mythology. They tried to worship them. They tried to stone them. It was all this crazy stuff. But one thing we know about the gospel is when the gospel is proclaimed, it never returns void, and people still meet Jesus. And so Paul and Barnabas continue on their way. At the end of Acts chapter 14, they come back through Galatia, and they be kind, of, kind of just come to encourage the believers that were newly converted. They come to encourage these people that had started these new churches in Galatia. Then you read in Acts chapter, end of Acts 14 into Acts chapter 15, that Paul and Barnabas end their long-term mission trip. They come back to that place known as Antioch, the church at Antioch, and they report everything that God had done. So they gather up the church in Antioch, and they're reporting all of God's activity among the Gentiles, how he was saving people that were not Jewish, and God's kingdom was expanding beyond simply the nation of Israel. But a problem happens. As Paul and Barnabas are back home, they're sharing this report of God's activity. The Bible says that this group of people known as the Judaizers, remember that phrase, you've heard that before, that the Judaizers go to Galatia. And they begin to infiltrate these newly founded churches in Galatia. And if you don't remember what a Judaizer was or you weren't here with us, a Judaizer believed this, that salvation was found in Jesus but second to that, you also had to continue to follow the Old Testament law of Moses. And their big hang-up was the act of circumcision, because that was the covenant sign between God and the nation of Israel that they were his people. And so the Judaizers would come into the church in Galatia, and they say, all right, we understand as Gentiles that you found this faith in Jesus. But if you really want to be saved, you really want to be a child of God, you also, males, you must get circumcised. Here's the problem with that. Salvation is found, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, in no one else but Jesus. And so there's no physical act or religious ritual that you and I can perform to get us right with God. It's only Jesus. Jesus saves no one, no thing, or anything else. It's never Jesus plus something that equals salvation. If you want to restore your relationship with God and have an eternal home in heaven, it's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus is the author and finisher, Hebrews chapter 12, of our salvation. So what happens? The Galatians get deceived. They start going down this crazy path. The Judaizers come then down to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are. This is like WWE Royal Rumble that's about to go down in Acts chapter 15 with Paul and Barnabas. Judaizers show up and they're like, hey, where's this guy named Paul? Where's Barnabas at? We got to talk to him. Here's the deal. If you want people to really be saved, it's Jesus plus circumcision. Paul's like, want to bet? Let's argue about it. They have this crazy debate. The church, honestly, is a little bit split and tense over this to the point where the church in Antioch says, here's how we have to resolve this. Paul, Barnabas, you guys need to go to Jerusalem. That was the mothership, the founding church, the sending church of all the churches. Go to Jerusalem, meet with the other 12 apostles. And we need to figure this thing out. Is it, is it Jesus plus nothing equals salvation? Or are Jewish customs and religious rituals required for us to be saved? 
They have this big meeting, a whole mess of stuff. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. I encourage you to do that in your own time. Basically, the result of that meeting, what was known as the Jerusalem Council, was a letter that was dispersed to all the churches. In the Jerusalem church, the apostles affirmed, salvation is found in no one else but the name of Jesus. I want to make sure we're clear on that this morning. It's Jesus only. Anything else that you choose to do beyond that does not save you. It does not save you. Only Jesus saves. So then what does Paul do? Paul writes a letter, the book of Galatians. Paul writes a letter to those Galatian churches to really reprimand them. And that's what's interesting as you read through Galatians. If you remember back in May, or probably back in April when we first started this letter, the letter to the Galatians is the only letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote where he does not tell them that he loves them and that he's praying for them. When he talks to every other New Testament church, he tells them, I love y'all and I'm praying for y'all. But when he writes to the Galatians, there's no love and there's no prayer. Why? Because Paul's kind of ticked off. He's a little bit frustrated with the Galatians because he's like, bro, I was literally there like two months ago. And you were like, yes, Jesus, we love him. We're all about that. Then the Judaizers show up and you're like, yes, Jesus, plus circumcision. What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you people? Why would you allow yourself to be enslaved to religious rituals when you've met Jesus. Paul's irritated with the Galatian believers because they experienced the freedom that Jesus offered, yet they were willing back to bind themselves to the law of Moses yet again. Freed from sin, law, and the death, in death, yet they're saying, you know what? Nope, we like the chains again. We like being bound to the religious rituals. We like being bound to the law of Moses. And Paul's like, what? What is wrong with you? And he writes this letter to kind of correct them. First three chapters, the three major themes, if you want to write these down. Paul defends his authority as an apostle. But you can read a lot about that in chapter 1. He corrects this false theology that the Galatians have adopted. And he also points to the sufficiency of Jesus for salvation. Now in chapter 4, where we're starting with these seven verses, Paul is explaining to them what it means to be an heir of Christ. I mean, you're free in Jesus, and you're a child of God. Why does that matter, and what does that mean for you? Let me affirm this little truth real quick for us all. Make sure we're all on the same page here. Um, Jesus is enough. We get that? In every aspect and area of your life, salvation specific, but in general, Jesus is enough. Remember that one song, you can have all this world, but, but give me Jesus. Why is that true? Because he's enough. You can take everything from me, but if I have Jesus, I'm good. Paul wants the Galatians to understand that. Second to that, second tier. Ready for this? Jesus' way is the best way to live your life. Don't get caught up in this cultural lie that Jesus' way is one way or Jesus' way is the wrong way. No, Jesus' way is the best way. Jesus' way in relationship, in finances, in marriage, in parenting, in employment, in every aspect of the human experience, His way is the best way. It's not restrictive, it's freeing. It's not restrictive, it's protective. Jesus' way is the best way. If you can't tell, I'm a little passionate about this this week. Here in, let's look at Acts, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul wants us to understand what does it mean to be an heir of Christ, a child of God. Notice this little phrase he says at the beginning of verse 1. He says this, now I say. That was a phrase that Paul often used in his letters. He used it a few times here in Galatians to really expound on things that he had said previously. Your Bible might take that little phrase, now I say, and it might translate it this way. It'd be Paul saying, hey, um, what I just said 
think of it this way, actually. Um, he might phrase it this way. What I just told you about being an heir of Christ, what I'm really saying is this. He, he's expanding on what he just closed out with in chapter 3. He wants us to understand, you and me included, not just the, the Galatians, that if you are justified by faith in Jesus, that you're no longer under the law of Moses, you're children of God, and here's why that matters for you. Three quick points if you take notes. I want you to write these down, and we're going to walk through these on a pretty rapid pace. First off, Paul starts here with a human illustration. He starts with a human illustration. Look again at verse 1, and then we'll, we'll explain these. He says, now I say, so he's expanding on what he already said, that as long as the heir is a child, that he differs in no way from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. What's going on in this passage? Well, in most cultures, and we know this to be true in American culture as well, there's a point in time where you reach a, a coming of age for, for men, for males, women included, but this is talking about men specifically. A coming of age where you transition from being a child to a man. In this culture, it's where you transition from being a child to being in charge of the inheritance that is awaiting you from your father's side of the family. For example, in Jewish culture, traditionally, what age do you transfer from child to man? It's age 13. That's still a very popular thing in Jewish culture today. You can see people have parties, celebration, because that from 12 to 13, you've now become a man. In our culture, when do you become a man in the American culture? What age is it? Participatory. 18. Sometimes maybe 16 because that's when you get your driver's license. What do you get at 18? You get the right to join the military, the right to vote, and the right to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad, I guess. All right, that's when you become a man in American culture is when you turn 18 years old. But in Roman culture, to whom Paul is writing to in this time period, they didn't have a set coming of age time. The coming of age for a Roman child, a Roman boy, was a time that was determined by the father. This would be the time where the father says, it's time for you, you've proven yourself, that you can transition from a child to a man. And with that, now you take on adult responsibilities and all responsibilities associated with your inheritance. But look at what Paul says in verse 1. He says that as long as that heir is still a child, he differs in no way from a slave. He says a son who hasn't reached that coming of age time is no different than the average household servant in Roman culture. Because although they are entitled to the inheritance that their father would ultimately leave them, because they're still considered a child, they actually have no right to it and they have no say over it currently. Why? Because they're a kid. They're a kid. They have no right to it. In the same way, a slave has no right to any of that. So if you're still a child, you're no different than a household servant. But then Paul goes on to, look at verse 2. Instead, that child is under two things, guardians and trustees, until the time set by his father. In Roman culture, most children, if you were wealthy in some capacity, you had a guardian over your life. Think of it like the modern-day nanny. This was a person that was in charge of, of your well-being as a child. So Paul's talking about that here. And then secondly, because the inheritance was not yours yet, because you're a kid, you had a trustee. It was like a bank being in charge of the inheritance that would someday be yours, but you're still a kid, so you have no rights over it. But then what does he go on to say? Ultimately, the father would determine the time in which you can take over those things. What's the spiritual picture for us here? 
Paul reminded us in chapter 3, you can go back and read it, that the law was meant to be our guardian. That before Jesus, God instituted the Mosaic law to be the guardian for his people. To do what? To show us the sin debt that we owed to a holy God and how desperately we needed a Messiah. The law was never meant to save us. It was our guardian until Christ. The law pointed out our need for a Savior, not a way of salvation. We needed a Messiah named Jesus. So what's Paul do? He starts out with this human illustration about the Romans, and then he makes a spiritual application. Point number two. Look at this. He starts off in verse three. In the same way, we also. That's that phrase from verse one. In the same way. He's expanding on what he said in verses one and two. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were, under, were in slavery under the elements of the world. Right? So a child in Roman culture had no rights and privileges. They had an inheritance that was promised to them, but no access to it. What's he pointing out to us again? Remember, this is everything is spiritual here with Paul. That everyone before Jesus was bound to the law of Moses as our guardian. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew that God had promised that to their father Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But it was not time for them to be released from the guardian to actually be um, an heir of Christ. God had not had that coming of age time come to pass yet. Right, because it's pre-Jesus, pre-Messiah. Now, look at verse 4. This is where we see the coming of age taking place for God's people. When the time came to completion... When God the Father determined that the time was correct, that the law was no longer necessary to be a guardian, what happens? This is good news, y'all. I'm about to throw a fit. God sent his son, you ready? Born of a woman, born under the law. What's Paul say? God determined the right time, the coming of age was coming to pass. We didn't need the law as a guardian anymore. Instead, God sent Jesus the Messiah and the full inheritance that comes with being a child of God was ours. How did he do it? Three specific things I want you to see. First, God sent his son. Y'all, that's one of the most like insane theological things that we could ever see in the scriptures, that God the Father stepped out of heaven in the person of Jesus. That's wild to me. God sent Jesus. Jesus, the embodiment of the human and the divine, all wrapped into one. You ready for some theology real quick? This is known as the hypostatic union in Scripture. If you didn't know that, that was free this morning, okay? It means that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man, all wrapped into one. As my friend Joe Veal says, Jesus was the only 200% person to ever exist, okay? Some of you all are like, wait, I know, Pastor Aaron, but you're pretty strong and muscular. You might be 125, right? No, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, full embodiment of God. Yet Jesus hungered, he thirsted, and he felt like you and I do. It's why he can sympathize in our weakness. Isn't that awesome? Secondly, what happens? Jesus was born of a woman. Why does that matter for us that Jesus was born of a woman? It doesn't say he was born of a man, because that's not possible. Cultural reference. Jesus was born of a woman. Why does that matter for us in the scriptures? Because the sin nature is passed through the Father. Ladies, that's good, okay? It's our fault. Sin nature is passed through the Father. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, Genesis chapter 3, 
Adam and Eve, they took of the fruit, sin entered the world. It's Adam's fault. The Bible says that Eve took as well, but Adam was with her. It's the headship of the male in the family. Although Eve partook as well, it's the male's fault because he didn't stop it. Guys, step up in your homes. Stop blaming things on your wife. I shouldn't go there. Don't blame stuff on our wives. Let's step up and lead our families. Goodness gracious. I'll preach a message on that sometime. So what happened? Death through sin came, and in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. The sin nature is passed through Adam. So because Jesus was conceived miraculously under the Holy Spirit in Mary, she was a virgin, had never been with a man, Jesus didn't possess the sin nature like you and I did. It's incredible. Born of a woman. Lastly, I love this. Jesus, says in Galatians 4 verse 4, was born under the law. Watch this. God was subjecting himself to the rules and regulations that he created living perfectly that which we could not live perfectly, to die the death we could not die, to secure the eternal life we did not deserve, to be with him forever by the grace of God. Jesus did it all. This is a big deal. Look at verse 5. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. For what purpose? Why do those three things matter? To redeem those under the law. That's you and I. That's the Galatians. That's the Jews. For what reason? That we could be we might receive adoption as sons. This is the Roman coming of age being put on display in the spiritual realm because Jesus was sacrificed on that cross and the sin debt that you owed and I owed was placed on his shoulders. You and I can now be adopted into God's family. Here's why that's incredible. Um, my nieces and nephews on my, sis, or my uh, wife's side of the family, uh, they adopted four children over the last six years. Here's what's really neat about adoption, even in our system, the same in Roman system. When you're adopted into a family, you have all full legal rights and privileges associated with that family. You're not a secondary child because you were adopted. No, no, no. You have all the rights and privileges of a natural born child because you were adopted into that family. Same in Roman culture. If you adopted a child, adopted a son into your family, no matter the son's background, even if they used to be a, a house servant or a slave, it didn't matter. When they were adopted into the family, they became a full heir of the father's inheritance. Everything associated with the man's name, status, and property, inheritance, everything was now the child's. He was not second class. He was equal with the biological children. What does that show the Galatians and show us today? Somebody might want to clear a spot. There's nothing better than being a child of God. Are we on the same page there? Like, because Jesus is our Savior. Listen to me. I wrote down four things that are so amazing to me. Heaven is yours. It's yours. You have all the rights and privileges associated with heaven. That's incredible. Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God from eternity past, is yours. Incredible. Access to God the Father is yours. In the Old Testament, if they tried to go in the presence of God the Father in the tabernacle, you know what happened to them? They instantly died because God is so holy. But because Jesus did a great exchange between your life and his life, and you are now the child of God, you have all the rights and privileges associated with God the Father. You now have access to the throne room of heaven, and nobody can tell you otherwise. Don't squander it because you're a child of God. Lastly, the Spirit of God is yours. 
The Spirit of God who in the Old Testament would only come on certain people at certain times for specific tasks is now yours all the time, 24-7, the entire existence of your life. The Spirit is yours. That's pretty significant. Let me give us one more point and we're done. The eternal benefit. Look at verse 6. And because you're sons, you're freed from the law, you're a child of God, God sent the Spirit of Jesus into our hearts. Oh my goodness. Look at this. Crying out, Abba, Father. Old Testament, if you were a child of God, you had to get circumcised. That was the covenant sign that you were a child of God. Don't ask me why. I'm not going to ask God why. That's what he decided to do. But now, because you're a, a child of Jesus and Jesus is your Savior, what's the covenant sign that you're God's son, that you're God's daughter? The Spirit of God dwelling within you. Galatians chapter 4. The Spirit of God dwelling within you. And think about this. Because you are now a son of God. In Roman culture, if you were a son, you had full access to your father. And now, because you're a child of God through the Spirit of, of Jesus now dwelling inside of you, you know what that means? You have full access to God the Father. Tim Keller said it this way one time. He said, the only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is, a is their child. We have that kind of access to our God. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? I, lo I love that. But notice this little phrase here, the last two words, that because the Spirit of God is in our hearts, what do we get to cry out? Abba, Father. Father, denoting a term of, of relationship, that, that he's still God the Father and worthy of our respect. Never lose that when you become a Christian. I, I'm, I get so frustrated with that sometimes. Sometimes we lose the reverence and all that our God deserves. He's still holy, although he's still, you have access to him. You respect him as your father. That's important. But notice the first word there, the word Abba. Abba, that's a, a term there that, that means literally daddy. It's a term of intimacy and closeness that you now have with God the Father because of Jesus. Think about it this way. I have two daughters, nine and four. When I come home or they wake up in the morning, I'll say to them, I'll say, hey, babies, how are you? Or, or hey, girls, how are you? They always respond with two words, hey, daddy. Why? Because they're my kids. We're close, and I love them. They're my daughters. If I walk up to any of your kids today and I say, hey, how are you? None of them, promise you, are going to respond with, hey, daddy. <laughs> That's weird, right? No, no, no. If they're going to respond to me, most kids in this church, they say, hey, hey, Aaron, hey, Mr. Aaron, hey, Pastor, hey, Pastor Aaron. We actually do have one kid, Parker, that calls me chicken head, so that's a different one. <laughs> but none of them call me daddy. Why? Because I don't have that relationship with them. But because I'm close to my kids in their mind, their heirs to my line, to my name, to my family, to my inheritance, you know what they get to call me? Daddy. And Paul reminds us here that because of Jesus... We have that kind of access. It's the holy reverence, yet the access where we can come to God the Father in intimate closeness and get to know Him and dwell with Him and be with Him for all eternity. Let's close with this last verse, verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. All the rights and privileges associated with being a child of God are given to you and given to me. And here's the question Paul wants to ask to the Galatians. Let's be honest. He wants to ask us, if you've experienced the freedom that is found in Jesus, why do you yoke your yourself to the, the elements of the world again? Jesus has given you all the rights and privileges of being one of his kids, yet why do we yoke ourselves back to the elemental forces of the world, thinking somehow that our way or the culture's way is better than Jesus' way? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree, trust me. What did they say? You know what, God, we're not going to trust you. We're going to do our way instead. God offered freedom. What did they choose? They wanted back in slavery. Think about Abraham. 
Abraham, how often did God tell him the the promised son, the heir, the nation of Israel will come through your line. Yet what did Abraham do? You know what, God? I know you said that, but I'm going to do things my own way, and I'm actually going to have a child with my, my servant. And now we see global conflict as a result ever since then. Think of the children of Israel when they were wandering in the Egyptian desert. And God set them free from everything, from Egyptian slavery. And and they're free. Yes, they're wandering, but they're with God. And how often do they say, you know what? I wish we could just go back to Egypt. Why do we give up the freedom that God offers us, that Jesus offers us to yoke ourselves back to the elemental things of this world? Let me give you a few other closers here. When it comes to salvation, trust Jesus' way. That's the message of Galatians. There's nothing you can do to save yourself no matter how hard you try. When it comes to marriage, trust Jesus' way. Look at what His Word says and do what it says. There's freedom in Jesus' way. When it comes to your finances, trust Jesus' way. When it comes to morality, especially in our culture, trust Jesus' way. When it comes to the human sexuality, which again is under fire in our culture these days, trust Jesus' way. Jesus' way is not restrictive. It's freeing. When I tell my daughters not to go in the road, it's not because I'm keeping something from them. It's because I'm protecting them. There's freedom in that. It's not freedom in loving to say, go run in the road, play with the cars, get hit. I don't care because I love you. No, it's called idiotic. That's called being a moron. Are we on the same page there? I came to preach today. It's not restrictive. It's freeing. Jesus' way is the best way. Why? Because you are an heir of Christ. You have full access to everything he offers Don't be like the prodigal son squandering your father's inheritance to go wallow with the pigs. Stay in the father's house and be with the father. Why? Because Jesus is better. And what's the title of the message? His way is the best way. Let's stick with his way. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for your goodness and kindness this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to be gathered with your church physically, those that are listening online, those that are going to listen on the radio. What an honor. God, would your word not only make its way through our ears today, but down into our hearts and infect and absolutely change the way that we live this week. Would the truth of that simple phrase that Jesus' way is the best way resonate in our spirits Monday through Saturday and cause us to draw closer to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.